Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Mick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jake Gunnison, as well as returning for a second episode, iOS developer and RayWenderlich.com Swift team member, Gemma Barlow. Thanks for agreeing to come back and do another episode, Gemma. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Now, Gemma, I've put 20 minutes up on the clock. What would you like to chat about? Sounds great. Um, I'm really excited to talk a little bit about iMessage apps today, um, mainly because I think they have fascinating potential, but mainly potential that hasn't yet been unlocked. A little bit of a background to this. Um, I gave a talk recently at one of the local New York meetups um, around just iMessage apps in general, and that allowed me to do a bunch of research into the different types of apps that are out there and, and some of the different uh, types we might consider building. Uh, I work for an e-commerce application, and so um, a company called Harry's, it's a men's grooming brand, and sometimes we have a hard time figuring out how to get the shiny new technologies into a form that might be really useful for our brand, um, and so I was really excited to kind of dig into this a little bit further. Uh, full disclosure, I haven't released any iMessage apps, but think they're really brilliant. And mainly actually because I think they're the first step towards iOS being a platform in general. So kind of your implementation is kind of leaking out beyond your regular iOS app. It's not actually leaking out, you're still all sandboxed, but kind of into areas that are a little bit more highly frequented in the user's phone, um, like the Messages app. Uh, iMessage apps actually kind of live within the Messages app that comes with your device, uh, they're on, and they're on iOS 10, so they're pretty shiny and new. So the talk that I gave was called iMessage Apps for Fun and Profit, and I found a couple of things kind of in doing that research. Um, one, there's a couple of different variations of the types of app that you can create. So the, the ones that have been promoted most prominently are actually the sticker pack uh, iMessage apps. Um, the idea being that you're trading stickers and adding stickers to your conversations with other users. And then you can actually do slightly more complex um, iMessage apps as well. So one example of this is uh, Airbnb has a really nice one. So most I- iMessage apps are based around a conversation that you're having um, with another person and kind of trying to enhance that conversation in some way. So the Airbnb one is actually um, trading uh, information about places that you might want to stay with that person and so then from a from a technical perspective you can kind of release them in two ways also interesting one is uh, on a standalone basis uh, and then one is also as an extension to an existing app on the store so that also poses some kind of interesting options for people that already have apps out there so to dig into those two types and kind of what I found and this is this is through store research technical research things like that um, kind of what sticker packs might be good for first of all it was branding and marketing to kind of build hype so um, one of the examples that I think in one of the release recent Apple related videos we saw was a Super Mario uh, sticker pack that's hyping the launch of Super Mario on iOS later this year side note very excited about that I'm a child <laughs> of the 90s that's a great thing and you can do those as free or paid. Um, and then iMessage uh, apps are going to be a little bit more complex. So sticker packs, I think the attention on a sticker pack is likely to be really short-lived. You might you might feel like you can update that sticker pack really frequently and add to it. And that would, I'm sure, bring people back to using it a little bit further. But I think uh, an iMessage app with a little bit more complex functionality is likely to be kind of a sure bet long term. Just before you go on, just because we're talking about the stickers, do you think that the market for stickers is more seasonal? 
I'm not sure. Um, the way I was thinking about it is engineers as a discipline tend to love stickers. Like we trade them at, at their swag. We trade them like physical stickers, trade them at um, conferences, pop them on our laptops. They're very kind of branded for us. I guess seasonal. Yeah, I could see some um, some seasonal element um, to some of these things. Like I think I've seen stickers already for kind of launches of movies and I'm sure around Christmas time or some of the holidays, maybe Halloween, we'll see some more. Um, specific sticker packs created. Yeah, I think I, I am yet to think of a really good use case, and you guys might be able to think of one of a sticker pack that's actually being updated over time, and it's the one sticker pack that's still installed. Um, the only thing I could think is like adding a couple of extra stickers to the existing one, but I couldn't come up with a, a really good case for that. I mean, I, I do struggle myself with stickers because stickers, whilst new to iMessage or messages, have been available and social networks for you know quite some time now i think path were the first ones to do sticker packs way back when and then you know you can have them in snapchat and facebook and uh, facebook's messenger and you know a few others and you know i i do use facebook messenger but very rarely in fact i don't think i've ever used a sticker oh really wow (laughs) I use them because I'm lazy and they convey emotion. <laughs> they, they convey emotion kind of before um, uh, before I'm writing a lot of sentences. Where I've struggled with that is uh, because they're not universal, but emoji or emoji um, are, like when I want to convey something and I only want to tap one character, I tend to use a you know an emoji face rather than... Other standard, yep. yep. Um, and because they're available you know, everywhere, then regardless of the medium in which I, you know, or the app or whatever, that I, the platform that I am trying to convey that message in, like it's the same result. Whereas these sticker packs are only available in these, that like the siloed within these these different messaging apps. No, I was going to say that is a really great point. Um, one, one maybe counterpoint um, to that, I think it's really fascinating is the accessibility options um, for the sticker packs are really, really good. And so I don't actually know how a screen reader would render. I guess I guess they're probably smart enough now to, to be able to read out uh, your standard emoji um, as the appropriate face. But I think the idea of uh, having stickers with like little descriptions is also really interesting um, for well, people that might be using some of those accessibility features. Having put, I mean, we were just talking about this briefly off air, uh, having put together a sticker pack, um, there is a big push on that side for accessibility. And you do, you are you are encouraged to give each sticker, there is an option in Xcode. Um, it's all done in like the, I don't know if you've you've played around with stickers. I know we were talking about iMessage apps, but um, it's all done in a, uh, you know, like the asset tool. Asset catalog, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, I couldn't think of the word. <laughs> and... You know, as you select a sticker, one of the options on the right is to give it a label for accessibility. So, you know, they must they they must work if you have that that functionality turned on within your phone. Yeah, I think I saw a tweet to suggest that um, uh, you would logically think that that would kind of default to something like the name of the sticker. And so, if you named the stickers appropriately, then then that would like filter through. But actually, there was there was some suggestion that that filling out that field is the best idea. So I think I think that's a really good point. Aspect. I'm yet to see a, a really complex iMessage app that I would actually use on a regular basis. I don't know if you guys have. Uh... I, I admittedly, I've only used two. Um, <laughs> one is uh, I'm a huge carrot uh, fan, so I use oh, like yeah. carrot weather okay. and all that kind of stuff. And Excellent. his iMessage app is quite cool. 
which because mm-hmm. it's basically just the weather app in you know in the, and then you can send that weather to somebody so if somebody asks you what the you know what's the weather going to be we're going away on vacation next week oh, right. so you, you yeah. know well what's the weather like in Coswell? you know i can just take a rather than like taking a screenshot or typing it out or you know whatever i can just go in yep. there and send it and it does it off i mean it's great um and hey, you, you, really you still get like the um the snide comments and all that kind of stuff which you know give it all all character and, and personality fantastic the other one which is a little bit more complicated because it allows you to go back and forth between you know different people um and obviously you know realwomen.com not we're not just here to plug our own stuff but it is a really good uh, sample app that Sam Sam put together on his on his series on this um he did a drawing app the basic premise of the app is you start a new game so let's say we were playing um, I start a new game. It gives me a word, and I have to draw a picture. That's so like Pictionary. I don't know if you guys have that in the states yet, um, but you have you're given a limited amount of ink. Um, so as you're drawing, like it, it's really difficult to be oh, able. Oh, so there's a timing aspect to it. That's really cool. And then uh, when you finish, you send that off. So I send that off to you, and you get to guess. Um, and then if you guess wrong, it sends it back to me and said, "No, you're wrong." And then the idea. So that all works, and is that to and fro in, and it's quite complicated. Um, and then the kind of the exercise for the reader is then to give the the person that originally created the drawing some more ink, so they can add a bit more to it, and then and then send it back. Um, and that that is quite complex, and like the, all the moving parts that need to come together to to make that work was quite interesting. And I think I think there is a um, potential with this for the gaming. You know the gaming side of things to really take off, yeah. Especially multiplayer gaming, obviously. That's really interesting. You've actually just reminded me that um, uh, for a little while I was playing Words with Friends um, between with my mum, who's in Australia, and so she would end up actually just messaging me within the Words with Friends game, um, and just kind of how like regularly <laughs> asking me things not related to the game. So yeah, you're right. I think um, they must have noticed that behaviour and kind of. Uh, focused on that how much have you looked at the api for doing apps i i did the i was interested in i had a couple of ideas and i kind of went through the api quickly uh, the, I, i'm curious if you have a good sense for what you can and can't do what some of the limitations are uh, in terms of mess uh, in terms of messaging apps yeah that's that's a good question i think a few things come to mind i found the apis to be fairly straightforward in general so i would say encourage people to check them out um i think they're they're quite nice you have basic so most of your iMessage apps are going to be uh, focused on this idea of a conversation and you have kind of basic different classes available to you like messages conversations things like that Um, in terms of restrictions you can create um, very, very complex types of messages. So you've got a bunch of different fields you can kind of work with to create a message of the style that you might like, but you actually can't send that to another person. And so I think that's really nice in that um, you as the app can kind of stage up whatever you like, but you as a user would never end up actually having something auto sent on your behalf. You have to actually accept and send that to somebody else. So that's a nice little security feature. It seems obvious when you talk about it, but certainly when you're looking through the APIs, you could see how it'd be easy to forget that bit. One of the things, one of the things I wanted to do, but I didn't see if I, it looked like I couldn't do it, but I kind of, I kind of gave up before I fully explored it. But can you, do you have access to the the history of the message, or do you only have the current, like data from that message? In other words, could you, could you do things based on uh, like message history? 
that's an interesting question. I'm actually not totally sure of the answer. Um, you do have you do have um, the ability to access the active conversation. Um, and so I think that there would be some sense of the history in there. Um, but yeah, I'm not totally sure either actually on that one. Uh, you would imagine that you could kind of see some level of detail. I suspect you may only, I think it might be that you can only see messages in that conversation that are related to that, to your application. So only stuff sent by your application, which, which feels logical when you say it out loud. Um, you suddenly started using an app and that app wanted to look at, you know, the, that conversation two months ago, probably wouldn't have access to that, right? Mm, I feel like no, um, okay. there's probably some timing restriction, but also I think the main, the main restriction would be whether or not the messages involved were actually sent by your application. I think that makes sense from a security point of view because like you could jump, like you could, if, you, if we were texting each other, whilst at the same time interacting with, say, a game like Sam's Game, like the texts that we send between the texts that are related to the game are, like, out of context of that game and, and are private and therefore shouldn't be accessible just because we've said, okay, you know, like, this app, um, you know, I can send a message using this app. Um, so I think that does make sense. That... It would be unilateral on some level, right? If, if only one person started using an app that could look at that history, the other person may not want that app to see all the history, yeah. if that makes sense. So yeah. there might be some issue where both parties haven't kind of consented. So I, I, like I say, I looked at it. I couldn't figure out how to do what I wanted to do, and it looked like that history just wasn't available, but... Um, I didn't, I didn't dig super deep. The other thing that I, that looked like a bit of a restriction was the, the, the structure and the size and, and the content of the data that you can send back and forth. It seemed to be restricted to like media plus message body. It didn't seem like you could send a whole, very much arbitrary data. Like if you had a, a game and you had a, a very complex game state, it seemed like that was something you had to do and, and I'm just I'm I could be wrong about this but it seemed like you needed to bring a server in if you wanted to do anything very robust yeah I would agree with that I'm looking at something called ms message template layout right at the second um, and it, it has all of the different pieces of metadata like you mentioned um, that you could send along with a message so you've got image audio or video um, but really apart from that just kind of titles and subtitles things like that uh, and all of the, it feels like all of the information that you're going to put into that template layout is uh, fairly uh, prominently displayed. So you can't really sneak a little bit of JSON or anything in there. Uh, I see, I, ha I work for a company and one of their competitors integrated an iMessage app and they send video, music videos back and forth. And I think they enable you to, you can send a music video to a friend and then your friend can like add edits onto your video and manipulate it. But I, I couldn't figure out how to do that without basically having a, a, a remote server that where most of that data lived and the messages had some identifier that was able to say, okay, here's the, here's the remote data that we need for this operation. Yeah. I think that that's the type of, uh, the type of underlying architecture that, that most people would have set up for these things. Uh, right. Do you remember, did Sam's app do anything like that that you guys remember? Uh, Sam encoded his stuff in a URL because I think you can pass a URL as one of the pieces of metadata he encodes all his uh, status URL query parameters and passes that to and from the different messages, which is quite a novel way of doing it. I think for a you know for a relatively simple app, um, you could probably get away with with doing that. It'd be nice and easy to do without you know the overhead or the worry and the implementation of a server side component. 
we're talking here about the slightly more complicated iMessage apps, um, the sticker packs really do start kind of uh, at a very easy level. So you, you actually, there's no code in the sticker packs like you, you had talked about earlier, Mick. You actually just drag a bunch of assets into uh, Xcode. And I think, I think that's going to be a really interesting way. It was, it was something that, this is a more of a side note, but something that jumped to mind when teaching people how to use Xcode. I'm actually kind of uh, getting acquainted to the interface in Xcode via the creation of an iMessage app could be an sorry, a sticker pack could be an interesting um, way to kind of get your hands a little bit dirty in the same way that playgrounds uh, are, are a nice way to introduce you to code without having to worry too much about the architecture of an application. I think that's a great idea. I wouldn't advise trying to um, distribute that though as a, as a way because, only because when I put mine together, y your experiences may have been the same. Um, what's mentioned in the docs and what actually happens when you try and interface with iTunes Connect are two very different things. So so for instance, um, the sticker pack docs state you only have to provide two icons. One for the one will be used for the app store and one will be used by the system to show it in that little drawer, you know, that, that you, you invoke within iMessage. And um, if you don't provide the others the system will generate them for you. So when I put mine together, I was thinking, okay, two icons, nice and easy. I'm not like graphically motivated in any way. So creating two was much better than creating, I think there's like 16 uh, in total. Or some some arbitrary number like that. So I tried to submit it to iTunes Connect and iTunes Connect threw it back and went, nope, you don't have enough icons in your package. And I ended up having to put an icon in every slot that there is in that. And like I said, I think there's some, some large number like 16 or 18. And then, well, that was, but that was just the start of it because you're thinking, okay, well, iMessage has got its only app store and you can't buy a sticker pack outside of the iMessage app store. But yet when you start filling in the metadata in iTunes Connect, you still have to submit iPhone screenshots, iPad screenshots, um, what else did I, stuff that seemed completely irrelevant to me making that sticker pack available within the context of iMessage and the iMessage app store. But it just took so long because there was no indication of what you needed to add. It was like, I'll add, it was trial and error. You know, I'll add something, I'll save it, I'll say, I'll try and submit it. And then it comes back with an error. Okay, I'll add that. And I think the process of submitting it to iTunes Connect and then submitting it for review took about three or four times as long as actually putting a sticker pack together in Xcode. So that was my first experience. I, I was interested in talking about iMessage on sticker sticker app. So this was great when you suggested this is your topic because it's something that we'd already <laughs> been... Timing. Yeah, well, it was really. And yeah. it's, the reason it, what prompted me was um, I'd been following this guy on Twitter and he released this iMessage app called Phonies. Now, uh, and that's Phonies PH, so it's like phone with a Y. Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, basically what it allows you to do is um, if somebody sent you a message you didn't like, um, you'd open up the Phonies app and, oh, well, there were stickers. I think I think the stickers. And um, you would peel one off and th it would look just like the iMessage message bubble, but it would have a canned response in it. And because you overlay it on top of that person's message, they obviously see it. So then it's funny because you, technically you've changed the content of their message. And this blew up. Um, I think it was mentioned by Gruber. I think it was mentioned on like iMore and The Verge and Recode and all these these big sites. 
It shot up to number one on the paid app store. It was featured by Apple. However, the caveat is, once it started getting all this attention, Apple didn't like it, even though um, it had been reviewed and it had been picked by an editorial team for, you know, featured, to be featured. And they got in touch with the chap that, um, that made it. Let me see if I can find his name. So Adam Howell. And said to him, we are... We're going to give you a week, I think it's a week, uh, to make some changes. And here are all the changes we want you to make. And basically, it was make your app look nothing like a iMessage bubble. So they wanted him to change the color, the font, like the rounded corners, the way that it looked. And, oh, we're going to pull it. We're going to give you a week to do that. And he eventually took the decision that he didn't want to do that. Because if he did, then the app for the people that had bought it would change from underneath them. And they wouldn't be able to to opt into that behavior. But the reason why this is interesting is because for the nine days that that was on the App Store, so September the 27th to October the 5th, uh, he made $34,000 in revenue. And then after Apple have taken their um, their slice, uh, he was left with $23,000, which for nine days and a, you know, a stick, that, that's like... That's good. So, and that does give you some hope that perhaps there is potential and an opportunity in, um, you know, stickers and, and iMessage apps. Yeah. So our, our time is up. Um, but thanks, Gemma. This was great. Before we move on, I'm going to take a, We're going to take a quick break and uh, hear from our sponsor. Indeed Prime helps tech talent such as software engineers simplify their job search and land their dream job. Candidates get immediate exposure to the best tech companies with just one simple application to Indeed Prime. Companies on Prime's exclusive platform message candidates with salary and equity up front. The average software engineer gets five employer contracts and an average salary offer of $125,000. Indeed Prime is 100% free for candidates, no strings attached. And when you're hired, Indeed Prime gives you a $2,000 bonus to say thanks for using Prime. But if you use Indeed.com slash Ray, you'll get a $5,000 bonus instead. Sign up now at Indeed.com slash Ray. That's R-A-Y. We'd like to thank Indeed Prime for sponsoring this episode of the RayWenderlake.com podcast. All right, Mick, your time begins now. What are you going to tell us about? Well, I'd like to talk about something that may come as a bit of a surprise for regular regular listeners of our podcast. Um, I want to talk about Unity uh, from personal experiences that I've had over the last couple of weeks. Now, obviously, we've talked about Unity a couple of times on maybe even more than a couple of times on the podcast before, and I've kind of always been on the outside of those conversations looking in because you know I'm not a game developer by any stretch of the imagination and I have only ever really used Unity maybe once or twice before and like the as far as I got was opening it up being massively overwhelmed by the interface thinking that this isn't for me it's not worth the effort I'll, I'll go and find something else fun to do instead. Last Monday we uh, had a parents evening at my daughter's school and uh, she's six now and she is in year two in primary school so at the end of this year she takes what are known as sats you guys may have some equivalent they're basically uh, tests for six and seven year olds um, and they use them to sort of grade the, how well the school's performing and where they expect like that year of children to go uh, in the future and that kind of stuff we were told during this parents evening that between year one and year two, there's this huge leap in the stuff that, that they learn and the volume of stuff that they learn and the intensity is, is much greater than the year that they were in before. The, the, the teachers highlighted an area that my daughter is not struggling with, but 
well, okay, yeah, struggling sort of to grasp the concepts behind some of these ideas in maths. One of the things that they do in school is they have these these worksheets that they, that they go through. You know, like I'm sure you guys have seen this, Jake. I know you've got kids, and they suggested that we do some of this at home. Now, that's fine. I have, you know, that's I'm all for you know helping uh, my daughter improve in this area. The way that I saw it was, you know, she's really into using her iPad at the minute. She she loves playing games on her iPad. And if there was some way where I could take the content of these worksheets and put them on an iPad and make them a little bit more interactive and maybe build some sort of very basic game around them, then it would be less like schoolwork. Because if I just had some photocopied sheets and I sat her down and said, you know, we need to work through these, she's going to know it's essentially homework or... You know, she's going to ask questions about... Because, I mean, they talk. Even at six and seven, they talk. She'll be asking, well, why did she have to do maths homework and nobody else in their class did maths homework and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, I wonder, you know, I wonder if if there's something I can do where we can take this and we can put it on her iPad and she can do it at her leisure and I can keep an eye on it. And, and because I'm writing it, as she gets better at it, I can increase the, you know, how hard it is. And therefore, we can ramp that up slowly without really her ever knowing. So I looked at what options were available to me and the kind of the two that stood out and again this I'm basing this basically on the experiences that I have as being part of the raywendley.com team and Raiseware because I mean these guys you you two know put a lot of effort into picking out the stuff that that we want to teach to other people and we get the you know the 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 the, pe- the people in that know about this stuff um to write the tutorials and make the videos and that kind of stuff and the two standout technologies seem to be um, SpriteKit, which is obviously Apple's framework, and Unity, uh, or more specifically 2D with Unity. I, I wasn't even going to attempt to do anything in 3D. My initial thought was to go with SpriteKit because, you know, it's iOS, it's what I know, it's Swift. But then, you know, I started thinking, well, if this is something I'm going to maintain, that was the plan that, you know, she would use this for, throughout the rest of the year to sort of uh, improve in this area of maths and... I would ramp up the, you know, how hard it is and, and maybe make some changes, that kind of stuff as we go. Like, I get, I've just felt over the last few months that every time I open Xcode, I'm having to rewrite a lot of uh, Swift because the version's changed underneath me and, you know, now nothing works. I have attempted to work with SpriteKit in the past unsuccessfully. Um, so I thought, oh, you know, we'll give Unity a shot this time. So I downloaded it, opened it up, had that same, you know, mass feeling of, being overwhelmed because it is a, a crazy interface when you first look at it. But what I really wanted to focus on, within about half an hour of playing with Unity, um, all these familiarities between working within their editor and the way that things are set up in there, the way that we do things in uh, iOS development, sort of started surfacing, and there are really uh, similar concepts in, say, Interface Builder, and the way things work in Interface Builder, and the way things work in the Unity Editor. So to give you an example, everything in, for, for anybody that has never opened up Unity, everything is done visually from the outset. Like um, even with uh, 3D, you build your 3D worlds by interacting with that world as you build it. You don't go off and write like 10,000 lines of code, build and run at the end, and you know you have a nice um, 3D. And it, like you, you, it's all very visual. Um, in the same way that the interface builder is, as you're dragging stuff onto your onto your canvas in in, in the Unity um, editor, and you have your components, uh, which are sort of small 
scripts of code that that and we'll get onto the component system in a minute the way that you connect them up is is dragging them dragging and dropping in the same way that you would connect you know an iv outlet up um and you do you, you know when you do end up writing some c sharp code and you declare a public variable uh, that is automatically exposed to unit editor and the way that you uh, connect that up again is you, you know if you for instance if you have a piece of text on your canvas and you've declared a text variable within your c sharp code the way that you connect those up in the editor is you drag and drop just in the same way that you would do in interface builder something else that was immediately familiar when i started looking a little bit deeper i wanted to look at um, unity obviously this uh, unity is all uh, OpenGL or Metal-based, depending on the platform you deploy to. Um, and it's all, you know, it, it, it was originally Unity 3D, that's all it did, um, and it, it's focused on games. But even within that, that context, there is still a need for, like, a UI system. So Unity, up until, or as I understand it, up until Unity 5, the UI system either was non-existent or what was there wasn't very good. So a lot of third-party UI systems existed that were much better. And then in Unity 5, they really sort of doubled down on the UI and, and um, delivered what is in Unity 5. And it's really good. The, you know, again, a lot of similar concepts. So the way that you lay things out, you can pin them to the edge of the canvas, to the top of the canvas. You, de you can decide how they grow, how they shrink, where, you know, should they be pinned to the center. Uh, you know, immediately, again, it started feel, feeling like uh, it's not quite auto-layout, but it's a little bit better than springs and struts. It probably sits somewhere in between. But even the way that the the tools are laid out in the inspector that you use to configure this stuff just felt immediately familiar once I'd kind of got over that initial hurdle. Something else that, I, well, again, when I started uh, digging a little bit deeper, you've got this idea of a prefab. Now, what a prefab is, is once you've dragged and dropped everything onto the canvas and you've got it all configured how you want if then you wanted to make a duplicate of that you can do that you can you know select it all and uh, command a and that will duplicate everything then you'll have two of exactly the same but if you change one those changes aren't reflected in the in the one that you copied but what you can do is you can take the original one and turn it into a prefab and then create as many instances of that prefab as you want and then if you want to make some changes and have them apply on all of them, uh, you can do that. And again, not only is that like uh, as a feature, a really good feature to have within that environment, but it just reminded me immediately of like the way that we use nibs and the way that, you know, a lot of people will design a uh, either a UI table view cell in a nib and then uh, we load that in and, you know, we register that nib when we create the, the table view and we reuse that same piece over and over and over again. Or we, if, if we're using storyboards, we create the prototype cell in the storyboard and that acts as a template. And then we create that over and over and over again. Um, so again, really familiar concepts. Now, one advantage of that in Unity that you don't get in, in Interface Builder is that as you are laying this stuff out, you are not seeing the template. You are seeing what would be on screen when it runs. So you can configure these and it's almost, well, you can run it and it is running live within the editor, but even in the preview, it, you can create 10 versions of these prefab or 10 instances of this prefab um, and, and configure it how you want. Uh, whereas obviously we can't do that in Interface Builder because you know we have this huge separation between design time and runtime. 
This is so exciting, Mick. You're getting me really excited for this because I my only exposure to Unity thus far has actually been a Ray Wendelik talk um, at a conference somewhere. So um, do you think that that's something that they would bring to Xcode? Do you think it would work well for an iOS application as well? I can't imagine why not. I, th- I think it really would. And, and something else, uh, it's kind of related. And I, I was going to talk on this. I think this is probably a good point to inject it because if you're excited by this, you know, <laughs> you're going to get really excited by what I'm about to tell you. In the same way that we have building running Xcode, yeah, to get it running on us. If you imagine that simulator was actually built into Interface Builder and was always running, that's you kind of get to where we are with Unity. So you, you click the little play button and it, it's, it's, it's running, but you can still select an object or a component in the, in the, well, what would be like the equivalent of a project navigator. You can select your your component and you can change your properties in the inspector and they are reflected real time in the running application that's so cool and when yeah. i seen that like my like the, the sound of my jaw in the floor like was like audible from from houses away because i was like how have we not got that interface but and jake and i were talking about this because obviously jake's got a ton of experience with unity um we were wondering if it was, you know, maybe um, Unity interprets the C-sharp code rather than, you know, it being compiled ahead of time. And, you know, th- th- there are probably either language reasons or the way that the architecture is that might make this a little bit difficult to implement in Interface Builder and Xcode. Uh, and we shouldn't really give them down the banks for it. But if you think about, even if you think about playgrounds, right, if you change a value in a playground... Um, it takes a split second before it can recompile or whatever it does. I mean, it's much faster than the build and run cycle, but like literally in Unity, you can grab like a position variable in the editor and you can drag it around with the mouse. So it'll just it'll just roll up and down as you drag the mouse back and forth. And the, the position of the element in your operating game will smoothly animate and move. And I don't mean it's, a, it's smoothly, it's a little jerky, but it's like, it's not like click, 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 it's like, you know, you're getting maybe 15 frames per second instead of 30 or 60 of of these modifications live. And so if you need to figure out some kind of touchy inter- interaction or you're just trying to get something positioned just right, it's way faster than trying to do, to build and run and build and run and change code. So I, I do think there's some, I do think there's some technical limitation because I, as I say, even in playgrounds, which their whole purpose is to be that kind of live like interface, they aren't as fast as Unity, um, and they don't ha- they don't have to deal with Interface Builder and, and XML files and all that jazz. So I, I I can't imagine there's not some technical thing that makes that much harder to do uh, with iOS, but it could be definitely. Um, so a couple of other things that uh, got me really excited: components. So I briefly touched on this. Now this is something that I've always struggled to understand at a sort of higher level just when you're discussing game design we've had as i said we've had conversations on the podcast we have a lot of people that are really interested in game development uh, as part of the wider raywendlet.com team we've had conversations with those on slack and you know at the conference and that kind of stuff and game design uh, or one of the the popular patterns in game design is this you know, component-based system. And Apple have actually delivered some of this technology as part of Gameplay Kit that uh, either came out last year or the year before, where the idea is that rather than trying to follow the model view controller paradigm that we're also familiar with from, 
you know, from the app. You create, rather than doing classes and subclasses and all that kind of stuff, you create a, an entity and then you attach components to it. And those components are kind of like siloed pieces of functionality that you can attach, you know, zero to n number of them to your entity to make it whatever it is that you want it to do. So to give you an example, uh, everything, as far as I understand it, and Jake, feel free to to jump in and correct me, but everything within Unity is a game object. And, and a game object is like the top level class and it has very few features of its own. And probably, again, you know, since we're talking about similarities, probably similar to like NS object or even UI view. Okay, so it's got like a transform, which is its X, Y, and Z position and its scale and its rotation, that kind of stuff. But there's not much beyond that. And then to build out the different things that you want to do. So for instance, if you want to display a sprite, you pull in the sprite renderer component. And if you want to um, attach a script to that, that, like your own script, then you pull in a script component. If you want to show some text, you pull in a, a text component. And these uh, things only expose that one piece of specific functionality that you know that you are trying to achieve. Coming from it from the other side, so as an AIS developer, this is something I looked at when I mentioned the work with SpriteKit. You have this uh, idea in your head of how things should work, MVC, and trying to, and especially when, when you come at it from the code point of view, which is what you would do, like, and I always found myself kind of falling back into this routine of, oh, this is a model, and, you know, this is a controller, and, oh, I'll just subclass this, and then I'll subclass it again, and then you get into this kind of crazy mess where you, you const- you're constantly moving stuff up the hierarchy because you want it to be available to two separate subclasses. And, and I always struggled with the component side of it, but being able to, like, manipulate them visually and and now get into this, you know, when the penny dropped and it's like, oh, this is how it's supposed to work. All that's just gone. And and I completely understand. That. Well, not completely, that's a bit. Um, but, you, I mean, I've got a better understanding of how it works now and and I am far more comfortable with it. And, and actually, with the stuff that I've been trying to do, I, that is a much easier way to go than trying to, like, code it up and, and trying to shoe on a game into a, you know, a pattern that is specifically for something other than, than games. I was just going to say, it's so great because I think a lot of iOS developers, uh, app developers do struggle with the, that idea of um, favoring composition now over inheritance. And my tendency is to also want to subclass things um, and have to kind of think through whether that's really required. So that's excellent. That sounds very good. Anything that promotes that idea. Yeah, I had the basically the same experience to, as what you had, Mick. I, I was still, even when I was working with Coco Studio and then Sprite Kit, I was still very much... Um, doing everything with inheritance and even though i kind of had heard of component systems and i had a rough idea i just i didn't really know i didn't have a concrete model in my head and then after playing with unity for a little while i was like oh this this is what it's supposed to be so if, if you if you're a game developer even if you don't want to develop your game in unity but you want to learn the entity component component architecture play with unity for a week and, and it will make so much more sense than, I mean, I had read tutorials on it. I had tried to understand that architecture pattern and, and I had a high level intellectual understanding, but I didn't have like that visceral, like when I need to solve a problem, what is the entity component way of doing this? And I think Gemma just mentioned that even in Swift now we've, with our extensions, we're actually, even in our regular apps, we are moving more towards this composition model, which is what entity component is. Definitely sounds like we had a 
a similar journey there. Um, I, I am conscious that we are running out of time, maybe even have run out of time, but there's just two things that I do want to mention briefly. Anybody listening to this might be thinking, all right, Mick, you know, you've talked about everything being visual and how fun and great that is, but at some point you're going to have to write some code. And that code in Unity is C-sharp. And we are Objective-C developers or we are Swift developers. Um, so, you know, what, what, how, does, how does that work? Um, well, I actually felt from the outset very comfortable writing C-sharp. Um, I went into it with an open mind. But it is like somebody took Objective-C and Swift and, like, mixed them in a big... Uh, boiling pot and C-sharp is what came out. Now, I, I can't claim that because obviously C-sharp's been around a long time and Swift is brand new. It has all the hallmarks of a C-based language. So, you know, anybody that's done any Objective-C or, or just C is going to be comfortable with that side of it. And then it's got things like generics, um, which obviously anybody that's worked with Swift will be familiar with. And kind of armed with th those two uh, experiences, I have gone in and I've written some um, C-sharp code and I am comfortable that I understand what I've written and how it works and why it works. Um, and I think that's the best we can we can hope for at this time. It really did not put me off. It wasn't like I was learning a brand new language. It was like I was just recognizing pieces from languages I already knew, if that makes sense. Um, so I was very able, I was easy, like very quickly able to construct some stuff that perhaps if it, if it was all a brand new language, or JavaScript, uh, then it, you know I would have struggled immensely to to achieve what it was that I was trying to achieve. Uh, and then the final thing, um, well, it's kind of two things, but really it's kind of the same thing, um, was how easy it was to get from the Unity editor onto my iPhone, because that was the thing I was thinking. It was like, well, okay, I can't deploy this straight to my iPhone, so there's got to be some hoops I've got to jump through in order to get this up and running. Um, not really, <laughs> to be honest. You go, uh, I think it's file and build or, or build and run or something in Unity. It pops up this little build setting panel. You select what platform you want to deploy it to. Um, so you select iOS. It generates an Xcode project for you. Um, you open that Xcode project. Because you're putting it on your physical device, you have to select a profile. And it, Xcode will then go away in the background and generate your provisioning profiles and all that kind of stuff for your certificates. And then once all that's done, you click build and run and that's it. It's deployed on your phone. All right, guys, that is a wrap for this episode. Thanks again, Gemma, for joining us. Yeah, thanks. It's been great. If you have any feedback or comments on the podcast, then please do get in contact via podcast at raywinderlake.com. And don't forget to leave your reviews on iTunes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you all next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendell.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.